well do, I do want to encourage you to give generously to the MASH offering this Sunday as it's going to help bring one of our missionary wives home, our sister in Christ, Kimberly Baldwin. And uh, she's, they're doing a great work, and this will be a great source of encouragement to them that's going to go to purchase a plane ticket so that she can participate in our women's retreat and take care of some other things while she's in the state. So um, please give to her in that way. Let's uh, pray together before we begin. Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for this tremendous passage of scripture which speaks to us of your character and nature, who you are. Lord, please, we would ask this morning that we would come to know you better. Some of us maybe need to come to know you for the first time. And we pray that through this encounter with you in Exodus chapter 3 that we would be changed as we behold our God. We also pray for our brother Larry Gaddis and ask for your comfort on the Gaddis family as they grieve the loss of his brother. And we pray for your encouragement to them. And that even in this text this morning, that there would be comfort and hope given uh, to the Gaddis family. Thank you, God, for the time we have now in your word. Capture our attention, focus our hearts, and change us by the power of your word. Speak, for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A.W. Tozer was a pastor in the last century and Probably, perhaps his most famous quote, he has many quotes. It has fallen down, hasn't it? You want to switch me to the pulpit mic? Unless I can pull it over. Okay, that might, that might work. Thank you. So A.W. Tozer said that what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Have you ever considered the impact of that quote? That what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We talk about God all the time, yet how often do we often stop and ask the question of what God we're actually talking about? It's strange when you think about it that people all over the world, even people who say they don't believe in God, are talking about God. Yet they don't stop to explain who it is that they're talking about when they purport to talk about God. Many people operate with just a God of their own conception. My God isn't like that. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Code phrase for, I make up my own God. As someone once observed, God created us in his image, and ever since, we've been returning the favor by creating him and ours. Even if you talk to someone or know someone in your family who professes to be an atheist or an agnostic, who are not sure whether they believe in God or who are sure and reject the idea of God, even they must have some idea of the God that they are rejecting. In fact, sometimes when I talk to people who say they don't believe in God, it's actually good to say, well, tell me what God you don't believe in because I might not believe in that God either. What do we actually mean when we talk about God. You've been living all week, scrolling through your Facebook feeds and reading the headlines, and all those headlines are telling you about what reality is. And even when the news pretends to give us the really important things, it's not likely to lead you to ask the most important questions. You can get through your whole week and never think about the most important things. So this morning, we're going to look at and hopefully answer the most important question 
you or anyone else could ever ask. Who is God? What is his name? God answers this in our text this morning. I want you to notice chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Good question. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. I am who I am. Notice he does not say, I am whoever you want me to be. That's the God of our day and age. I am whoever you want me to be. But God says, I am who I am. He's not a God who morphs and changes and transforms into what we want him or think him to be. He's the God who is. In our culture, God is whatever we imagine him to be. Do you want him big or do you want him small? You want him short, you want him tall. You want him a he, him, her, it. What do you want? You want a they? Want multiple? That's not God. God alone is not defined by what other people think about him. He defines himself and does not permit anyone else to do so. The Lord is not determined by anyone other than himself. That's in part what I am, who I am, is trying to communicate. So the question I want to answer this morning is, who is this God who is? Who is the one who is there? Who is the true and living God? Not the God we think him to be, but the one who reveals himself to be. And so that's where we're going this morning. We're going to look at the entirety of Exodus chapter 3, and I want to talk about five aspects of the God who is. We want to get to know God this morning, who he is as he's revealed himself to be. We're going to look at his holiness and his righteousness and his compassion and his salvation and the hope that he offers to us. Five statements about the God who is. Here's the first one. God initiates to us and reveals himself as inviting and terrifying. God initiates to us and reveals himself as inviting and terrifying. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Moses, remember where we picked up last week? We're picking up where we left off. Moses was in the wilderness in Midian. He'd failed. He tried to deliver the people under his own methods, on his own timetable. He failed to do that. As a result, he's in Midian. He's raising a family. He's being a shepherd. And so he's doing what a shepherd does, looking over his sheep, and he's in the desert in Midian. And he's near the mountain of God. And verse 2 introduces a great change in his day. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Interesting. Bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed. And Moses said, 
This is interesting. I'm going to go, I'm going to look at this. And then verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. It's not the bush talking, but it's God within the bush speaking. This is a manifestation of God, but it's God who is speaking. And he says, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here I am. Now, Moses is not telling God where he is. Okay, it's not as though the bush is talking and saying, Moses, where are you? Where are you? Oh, here I am, bush, talking. No, he's saying literally at your service. This is the same thing that Isaiah says in Isaiah 6 when that great vision of God shows up to Isaiah and he says, here am I, here I am. He's making himself available to whatever God wants to say to him at this time. And here's what God says in verse 5. Don't come near. Don't come near. Don't come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. In verse 6 he says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now what you have here is this beautiful juxtaposition of realities. You have on the one hand, God being tremendously inviting. He's accommodating himself to time and space in a visible manifestation. He's drawing near to his servant. He uses his name, Moses. He's calling him out because he wants him to come near. But notice he says, don't come near. Take your sandals off. You're on holy ground. And Moses is terrified. So at one and the same time, we meet a God who initiates to us, who desires to communicate to us, who at the same time is absolutely terrifying. And we see this over and over and over again in Scripture. God is simultaneously inviting and terrifying. In the Bible, fire often accompanies the self-revelation of God. We see it again and again. We'll see it again and again as we go through the book of Exodus. But fire generally stands for a manifestation of God's holiness and purity. That God is holy. That's clearly what's being communicated here by fire in the bush. He says, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals. The place that you're standing is holy ground because God is there. And where God is there, holiness is there. And holiness means separation, otherness, distinctness from us. We meet here a God who desires to be with us, but a God who is not like us in his nature. And notice this bush is on fire, but it's not consumed. This fire is operating independent of the bush. It is not dependent on the bush for fuel to maintain. We know that when you have a fire, you've got to keep the kindling coming, keep the sticks coming, keep the wood on the fire to keep the fire burning. Not the case here. The fire is completely independent of the bush. It is not relying on the bush for fuel. And it's communicating something about uh, that, that, that image. is communicating something about God to us. Namely, God is independent. God is not dependent on anything he's created to exist. He has life in himself. And what an amazing image fire is for the presence of God. Because like fire... Fire is simultaneously inviting and terrifying, isn't it? When you stand around a campfire, it's the best experience in the world. Feels good unless you get thrown in it. 
then that's a very bad experience, right? So we want to get close enough to fire where we can be warmed by it, but not too close lest we be burned. And that's a beautiful image of who God is like. Moses is afraid, but he's invited by this God who knows his name to come into his presence. But it's gonna co- Moses is going to come into God's presence on God's terms, not on Moses' terms. Moses might think, oh, bush, glowing flame, interesting. Let's get as close to it as we possibly can. And he's incinerated on the spot because he's an unholy man in the presence of a holy God. So God says, don't come any further. I know you're interested in this. This is a fascinating sight. I get it. But don't come further. I'm protecting you. I love you. You're going to have to come on my terms. Here's the first term. Take your shoes off. You, and we don't know exactly why it could have been some sort of uh, effort to show humility in the presence of this God, but it's more likely saying, listen, that ground ain't dirty. Your feet are. So you kick your shoes off and you come and you come, you come, you draw near, but not too far. The place you're standing is holy ground. God and God alone determines how and who may approach him. That's crystal clear in these verses. He initiates to Moses, he communicates to Moses, and he sets the terms for how the relationship is going to work. Is that the God you know? Is that the God you know? A God who is who he is and determines how he will be worshipped, approached, have a relationship with. It's going to come on his terms. That is the God who is. The God who is is a holy God. The God who is is a God who is other. The God who is is independent. The God who is is self-sufficient. The God who is does not need us but invites us. And so that's what we see in this first point. Point number two, God plans and executes righteous judgment. God plans and executes righteous judgment. We've been looking at the beginning of the chapter. Let's skip closer to the end. Look at verse 20 of chapter 3. This is where God is telling Moses exactly what he's getting ready to do through him. He says, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he, Pharaoh, will let you go. Verse 21, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and when you go, you shall not go empty. Look back at verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So he's got a plan here to rescue his people. We're going to get to that a little bit later. But he's going to do it through judgment. He's going to do it by sending righteous judgment upon Egypt primarily through its leader. And this was all in accord with what God had promised. God told Abraham 430 years before this that this was what was going to happen. He said in Genesis 15, verses 15 and 16, As for you, God says to Abram, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You're going to die. You shall be buried in a good old age. Verse 16, And they shall come back here, that is your people, in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What's he saying there? He's saying your people are going to be brought into Egyptian captivity. That's made clear in Genesis 46. And the Lord says, 
I'm not going to be ready to give you the promised land just yet because the iniquity of the Amorites is not complete. Now, what's he saying? The Lord is waiting. Part of what he was waiting for all this time was for the sins of those people to so accumulate that God would be utterly just in wiping them out, in judging them the way he judged them. Because God is a God of righteous judgment. He doesn't just say, okay, well, what do I feel like doing today? I feel like getting back at some people. I'm just going to punish them even though it's not deserved. No, he's waiting. And these people are getting more wicked, more wicked, more wicked. And then he knows exactly the timetable where he says, done. Cue the judgment. That's a really sobering thing. It's a sobering reality to think about our own country in that way because that's the way God deals with all nations. Any country, any group of people, not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet, now. Iniquity's been fulfilled. And now their destruction will be completely and utterly deserved. That's what he's doing. He's orchestrating his, these situations in his providence whereby he will righteously judge the, the nations, specifically here the Amorites or the Gentile nations, the, the people of Egypt. Now, this, lest we think that this is just, a, just one historical example of a God of judgment, no, this is taught throughout Scripture that God is a God who executes righteous judgment. Hebrews 9.27 says it's the destiny for all of us. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Romans chapter 2, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Why does God delay his judgment. Well, we'll get to that in a second, but ask this question first. What does that delay in judgment typically produce in people? The fact that God has not judged the world in any significant way. The, the fact that God has restrained so much judgment. Well, it doesn't produce people coming to him. Ecclesiastes 8.11 says what it produces. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. That's what happens when God's judgment is delayed. People store up more judgment. What should it produce? Hebrew, Romans 2.4 says what it should produce. Do you regard the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? You think about this day after day, sun coming up, breath in your lungs, living in God's world, being taken care of by him, walking in rebellion to him, and yet he continues to wake you up, give you life and breath and everything. Do you regard his, the riches of his kindness and his patience, not realizing that that's meant to lead you to repentance? 2 Peter 3.9 also says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some understand slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's God. He's a God of judgment, right? 
but he's also a God who wants people to escape his judgment. And so he's a God of compassion. We see that. We saw it by being inviting to Moses, but we also saw him in saying, don't come near, don't come close. So that's point number two. God plans and executes righteous judgment, but he's slow in doing so because of point number three. God compassionately identifies with his people. We looked at this verse last week, but look back at chapter 2, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. This is is a sad situation. These these people are groaning. According to verse 7 of chapter 3, they were under affliction. They were oppressed in slavery, chapter 3, verse 9. They were crying out to God. They were groaning. Their cry was coming up to God. And where does this come from? Why do people find themselves in situations like this? Why people facing such difficult slavery, oppression, groaning, crying out for help to God? Why is this world and our lives so broken? Sin. Sin is the answer. Our lives are full of trouble because of the effects of sin in the garden. But brothers and sisters, while this is a terrible situation, and I would never want to minimize the incredible physical oppression that the people of Israel are undergoing, this form of oppression is not the worst form of oppression. There is a greater form of oppression, and that's sin in the heart of the human being. The greatest threat of sin, while sin exists in the external, definitely, sin is more dangerous in the internal because it's the internal that produces the external to begin with. Perhaps no one better summarized this than Neil Postman, who was not a a Christian. He was a Jewish man who was a cultural critic, and probably his most famous book was written, I believe, at the turn of 1980, around 1980, called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Neil Postman's no longer with us. He died several years ago. But he opens that book with an amazing illustration and contrast. Perhaps you're familiar with two different stories. The first is George Orwell's 1984, and the second is Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. And both of those novels paint a vision of what's gone wrong with the world. And Orwell, in 1984, explains, he, he paints a picture of an imagined future in which Our freedom is destroyed by external forces coming down upon us. Spies, prisons, torture chambers, the state, external forces pressing in. But Huxley, in Brave New World, imagined one in which our freedom is destroyed from within by enemies inside of ourselves. And it turns out things like innate desires and pride and hedonism and leisure and Those sorts of things were eating out the soul. And it turns out that Huxley, not Orwell, was right. A contemporary parallel for those of you who are younger would be the Hunger Games, where you have the green-haired, celebrity-obsessed crowds in the Capitol, 
and they are in many ways more captive, less free, and more pitiable than the bread-starved vagrants in District 12. Their chains are invisible, but they're no less enslaved. And so biblical freedom then involves both halves of the Exodus journey. It means being rescued from both Orwell's and Huxley's nightmares, the tyranny of the other and the tyranny of the self. Egyptian enslavement and Israelite craving. The greatest threats to our true freedom do not come, it seems, from external oppression, but from within. Delivering Israel from slavery to Pharaoh took only ten plagues. But delivering delivering Israel from slavery to self, sin, sex, greed, and idolatry took ten commandments, took ten separate trials and corresponding judgments, and ended up with a whole generation dying in the wilderness, dying to go back to Egypt. It's a lot harder to get Egypt out of us than us out of Egypt. True slavery is captivity of the soul, not just the body, and that's what sin does. And until a person or a nation is freed from that and free to become what God originally intended them to be, their exodus will be incomplete. No amount of external change is going to bring about an internal change. But notice God's compassion. Notice how God cares It says in verse 24 of chapter 2, God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God sees. He says in chapter 3, I've seen the affliction of my people. I've seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. I observed what has been done to them in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. The cry of the people has come up to me. I know their sufferings. This is a God who's paying special attention to what is going on in in the lives of his oppressed people. He cares. He wants to... No, he wants them to know that he cares. He's heard their groaning. He's seen it and he's felt it. That's what he means. He knows. He sympathizes. He is compassionate. I want to share a brief story with you. Perhaps some of you remember a young man who was a member of our church for a period of time named Josh Vincent. Josh was here probably 15 years ago, maybe. 12, 13 years ago. He was here for a little while before he went to Southern and finished his uh, Master's of Divinity, and he's been pastoring for a number of years. And last month, he lost his wife. 14 years of marriage. Josh is in his late 30s. He's my age. Last month, Josh lost his wife to a seven and a half year battle with cancer. He's a 38 year old pastor and a dad to three boys who are 12, 10, and 7. You see him pictured at the funeral behind me. Josh wrote an article this week for the Gospel Coalition, and he entitled it, I Feel Invisible After My Wife's Death. And then he wrote the following. Many have asked, what's it like to lose your wife? A number of words come to mind. One is invisible. After 14 years with Carrie, I felt like she saw me, all of me, and loved me anyway, the good, the bad, the ugly, 
She saw my imperfections and challenged me to grow. Carrie saw evidences of grace in my life and told me about them in ways that made me blush. She knew she could bring me to my knees with just a word, and sometimes she did. She knew my fears. She knew my dreams. We dreamed together all the time. I opened it all to her and trusted it to her, only her. And now the one person who saw me is gone. Yet the loss of being seen by Carrie reminds me that in a much more profound way, Christ sees me. I know Jesus isn't my girlfriend, but he is the lover of my soul. His laser-like gaze never moves. His attention never wanes. He never abandons me, no matter how ugly I am. He died to bring me out of the grossness of my rebellion to myself. Christ knew me while I was in my mother's womb. Not one of my days was hidden from him. Not one sin has ever escaped his attention. Nevertheless, I have a promise. Nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. That's good news, and it's real. So how is our brother Josh being comforted? He's being comforted the way the Israelites were being comforted. God sees. God hears. God knows. God loves you. God has compassion on you in your sufferings. Point number four. God rescues his people through a savior. God rescues his people through a savior. Now, if you've been paying attention so far, I hope you've picked up on a little bit of a dilemma here. At one and the same time, God is holy. God is terrifying. Judgment is real. Yet, God has compassion. God loves. How is this to be reconciled? How can a holy God, who is too pure to even look on evil, who has to say to the one he loves, Moses, stop, don't come any further, take off your shoes, who requires Moses to obey him so that he won't be consumed, how can this God dwell with us? How can we come closer? Is there a way? How can God be both a God of judgment and mercy? How can he be inviting and terrifying? How can he be a God who dwells among us and yet we are not consumed? How can he be both compassionate and gracious and yet not leave the guilty unpunished? How how does this work? Some of you here might be thinking, I don't see the dilemma. I don't see the dilemma. I mean... Why is there a dilemma? There's a dilemma. There's a big dilemma. Let me give you one verse on the dilemma. Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Think about that. God says in the Proverbs that to justify the wicked is an abomination. So if God were to justify the wicked, he would become an abomination in his own eyes. That's how holy he is. And likewise, if the righteous were condemned, there would be an abomination. So how does this work? It sounds like everybody gets what they deserve. That's the way to please the Lord. Everybody gets what they deserve. You don't justify the wicked, you don't condemn the righteous. 
Well, in and of ourselves, if God were to do that, it would be an abomination. If God were to invite sinful people into his presence and say, hey, I'm easy going. Let bygones be bygones. Sleep it under, sweep it under the rug. It's, it's in the past. Come on in. Or likewise, if his perfect, holy, blameless son were to come into his presence and he says, get out of here. It'd be like condemning the righteous. But if God provides a mediator, if God provides a savior who at one and the same time can justify us and yet uphold the righteous justice of God, we have a salvation plan, don't we? (laughs) We have a hope. And what God pictures here is that he's going to deliver his people, not by himself, but he's going to deliver his people through a savior named Moses. Now, this is a picture of the way God saves. Okay? He saves through a man that he has appointed to say, through, as, as the vehicle through which he will save. Now, Moses is imperfect. He's, a, he's just a shadow of what's to come. This is not the final and full picture of salvation, but it is, it is a picture. And it's a picture that God is going to rescue his people through a Savior. Now, we have a greater Savior, and his name is Jesus. And Pastor Ted referenced this passage this morning in Romans chapter 3, if you were in his class. So I just want to read a part of that again. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God, Christ Jesus, God put forward as a propitiation, a wrath-atoning sacrifice, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. So one of the reasons that Jesus was on the cross was to show how holy God is. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, he says, that's what I think about sin. That's what sin deserves. The crucifixion of the God-man. And yet, at the same time, it's also communicating something else. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time, but so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So at one and the same time, God can say, look at the cross. See how righteous I am? See what happens when I keep passing over people's sins for generations upon generations upon generations? And all of heaven is calling me on it. What are you going to This is an abomination, God. What are you, when are you going to do something about this? He says, well, just wait. Just wait. We'll get there and you'll see. Now look. And all of heaven says, oh. The God-man hanging and bleeding shows that God is righteous. You know what else it shows? God is love. God is compassionate. God cares. He's willing to give up his own son to save you. And that's where the dilemma is resolved. That's where God is no longer an abomination to himself. Because he justifies us not on the basis of our righteousness, which would be wicked, but on the basis of Christ's righteousness, which is altogether perfect. That's why we're justified with an imputed righteousness. So that God's justice is upheld. And Christ is not condemned as a righteous man. Christ is condemned as our place, as a wicked man. And that's why it's not an abomination to God. Because when he condemns Christ, he's condemning Christ in our place. He is bearing our sins on the tree. Now let me close with this before we come to a very quick final point. I'm wrapping up point four here. 
Why is Jesus uniquely qualified to do this? It's not just because of what we've read in Romans 3, although that's sufficient. But I want to take you to John chapter 8 quickly. Go there with me. Hold your finger in Exodus 3. We're going to come back in a second. Go to John chapter 8. And I want you to see with me a time that Jesus said something that almost got him killed. Jesus is interacting with the Jews of his day. We'll start reading in verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus is accused of being demon-possessed. Verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is judged. Truly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Because that's crazy talk. You're going around like a a regular rabbi saying if people obey you that they're going to escape death. This is crazy. Look at verse 53. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Verse 54, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you've not known him. I know him. If I were to say say that I do not know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. That's a little backhanded insult. Verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Woo! Abraham thought about me. They're picking up on what he's saying. Look at verse 57. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. They knew exactly what he was saying. They thought Exodus 3. How do we know that? Look at what they did. Verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. What do you th- Why do they throw stones? Blasphemy. Blasphemy. Now he is claiming to be the I am who I am of Exodus 3. They pick up stones to kill him because they understood as clear as day what he was saying. Jesus of Nazareth, this Middle Eastern rabbi, this Jewish man, was equating himself with the I am who I am of Exodus 3. In saying I am, Jesus was claiming to be the same living God who made personal covenant with Abraham, the same God who here in the burning bush revealed himself to Moses. Who is God? I am who I am, or as you may call him, Jesus. That's what Jesus says. I have a name. My name is Jesus. And God has bestowed on me the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He has the highest name. He is I am. And God says, I have come down to deliver my people. But why is God delivering them and not Egypt? 
Why is God delivering his people? Now get this because it's really important to understand salvation. Why is God delivering Israel? Is not Israel worthy of judgment? Have they not sinned? Why is he judging Egypt? One answer. Because of his promise. Because of promises he made. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 6 through 8 make it clear that it was not because they were better. But it was based on a covenant that he made. He saw them and he had compassion for them. He heard their cries and he answered them, not because they were the nicest people on earth. He answered them because of a promise that he had made to Abraham. And listen, we are saved because we are in union with the true son of Abraham. All those who are of faith, Galatians 3.29, who have faith in the Lord Jesus are children of Abraham. We are not saved because of our goodness our niceness, we are saved on the basis of God's promise to his son who is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. He had a son of son named Abraham, but he has a greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are saved because we are in union with Jesus just as Israel was saved because of their union with Abraham. It's all of grace. They did not deserve it. All they had to do, what were they doing to get God's salvation here? They're crying out for it. It's all they're doing. God, save us. God, rescue us. God, deliver us. All they're doing is calling upon his name, and that's the same way we're saved. We call upon the name of the Lord. If you're here this morning, never been saved, call upon the name of the Lord. You'll be saved, Romans 10, 13. All those who call upon the name of the Lord cry out from their hearts, God, save me. Have mercy on me. Show me compassion that I don't deserve. Withhold your judgment from me. Give it to Jesus. Have him bear it in my place. I receive him as my Lord. I will follow him. You're my only hope. And let me close with this quickly. Number five, God promises his people a glorious future hope. When a group of Sadducees tried to show that the resurrection from the dead was illogical, Jesus referred to this very event in Exodus chapter 3. In Luke chapter 20, verses 37 through 40, we read, But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he's not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. See what he says there? Jesus says, God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're alive. They're alive. When God took the names of the patriarchs to himself, he eternally bound himself to them. And when God binds himself to someone, they live as he lives. If God has bound himself to the patriarchs, and especially the Lord Jesus Christ in whom the fulfillment comes, then all those who are joined to Jesus have the eternal hope of escaping mortality and attaining the resurrection from the dead. This is why the, it's foretasted and pictured in the land flowing with milk and honey that God is promising to his people here. He said, I'm going to bring you out into a good and broad land. Milk and honey is just the Old Testament way of there's lots and fats and sugars there. It's a good land. It's a good land. You'll be eating good. You'll be living good. God takes his people from pain to paradise. He takes his people out of a painful misery 
to a glorious destiny. And we will be there one day when Jesus returns and makes all things new. The earth will be renewed and we will live forever with Jesus in the new Jerusalem. The whole earth will be the promised land. And we're going to be up to our eyeballs in glory. Is, it all, is this all just, you know, pie in the sky, too good to be true? No, because God is a God who is faithful to his promises. If we see this, if we can't get that out of Exodus chapter 3, we won't get anything else. God is faithful. If he makes a, faith, if he makes a covenant, if he makes a promise, you better believe he will keep it. That's what he said to Abraham in Genesis 15. He said, listen, and he did this image, there's fire again, and there's this image of this splitness animal in half. And it's this weird, bizarre image, kind of a covenant-making ceremony. And it's God saying, Abraham, if I don't keep this promise to you, treat me as I've treated this animal. You can slice me in two. I'm good for it. I'm good for my promises. Genesis 15, verse 13 and 14, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. And did that not happen according to God's timetable? Because God is faithful. He's not going to forget his promises. Genesis 46, 2 through 4, and God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. Hmm, sounds like Moses is the second Jacob. Same thing, Jacob, Jacob, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. Brothers and sisters, here's the takeaway. You have a great future secured by the blood and resurrection of Christ Jesus. And here's the even better news. God's with you now in the wilderness. He said that, didn't he? I'm going to go down with you. And he is. He sees, he hears, he knows. He's there. In a world of broken promises, we serve a God who will never, ever break his. And that's our hope for this week and for the rest of our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning, for the God we meet here. We pray that you would change us through this passage this morning. Help us, as we've seen your glory in a small degree, help us to be transformed from one degree of glory into another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So, Spirit, please take what we have considered this morning and open our hearts and our eyes and our lives to this great hope that you've given us. Thank you so much for being a God of such great compassion. Thank you for being a God of unimaginable holiness. Thank you for being a God of righteousness and justice. Thank you for being a God who saves. And thank you for being a God that promises a glorious future hope to all those who call upon your name. We pray all this in the name of the one in whom we call Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and respond.